0: We're continuing in our study of the book of Philippians, and today we're actually looking at a passage. that's probably one of the most well-known passages that the Apostle Paul wrote, this um, messenger and ambassador of Jesus to the Roman Empire. Certainly probably the most recognizable one from the book of Philippians. But before we get into that passage, let me ask you, how does this song continue? Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> Bobby McFerrin, 1988, was the first person to have an a cappella song hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And if you didn't know the tune of this song, and if you were to subtract the chorus, it would sound almost like a blues song. He says, ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry. (laughs) Be happy. The landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. Be happy. Ain't got no cash. Ain't got no style. Ain't got no gal to make you smile. Don't worry. Be happy. Because when you worry, your face will frown. And that will bring everybody down. So don't worry. Be happy. How does that counsel, don't worry, be happy, strike you? The reason I'm asking you this question and beginning our study together like this is because the central thrust of the passage we're going to look at today sometimes sounds to people, don't worry, be happy. Paul us, rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious about anything. And someone says, don't be anxious about anything. You've got to be kidding me. Don't you know what I've been going through? It's a good response, right? My wife and I have gone through a bunch over the last 10 week, 14 days, and if you would have just come up to me and said, you should be rejoicing. Don't be anxious about anything. I probably would have just stared at you and began blinking my eyes trying to restrain myself. We found out we had a tax bill that we didn't know we were going to owe because we had two sons move out of, co- of a house this last week, and, or last week, last year, and I thought that we had it covered because they lived with us part of the year, but evidently there's a new law that makes a certain amount of money, and you're dependent still living at home, you don't get that credit, and so we got hit with a tax bill. A few days later, Heather was driving back from that ladies' night out with some of you all here at the church, and um, her car stopped working in our neighborhood, and I got it to the shop around the corner about half a mile away and found out our transmission died. And so I was like, oh. So Heather and I are regrouping. We're like, all right, we got a house overhead. We still got food in the pantry. Both of us still have jobs. The Lord hasn't fallen off his throne. We're going to make it through this. We got these two weddings coming up this summer that our boys are in and that's on the horizon. And then our microwave went out and toaster stopped working and I made a errand yesterday, and I came home, and my wife was at our back door crying, trying to put our, our knob back together. Somehow it came off. <laughs> and she was crying, and she was laughing. I asked, by the way, if I could say this. And um, she said yes. And she said, as we were talking about afterwards, it's just a doorknob that's not working. But it's like one thing after another, after another, after another. And so when you hear these words, rejoice always, don't be anxious about anything, I feel sympathetic to the person who says, you've got to be kidding me. How can that possibly be? Well, these are the words of the Apostle Paul, Jesus' right-hand man and ambassador to the Empire. He's learned a thing or two about what it means to rejoice. He's experienced a storm or two in his own life. In fact, he wrote to some of his friends in Corinth, and he described himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Full of sorrow, yet always rejoicing. And as we learn from that movie, Inside Out, sometimes you can experience two different emotions at the same time, right? And I'm glad that Paul puts it that way. And I'm glad that he learned that lesson. Because it's going to carry him throughout life. In fact, by the time he wrote this letter that we're looking at, the book of Philippians, Paul has been in chains for Christ for four years. Talk about a storm of life hitting you. Dependent on the goodwill of friends, bringing him the basics of life, food and water, because the Romans didn't provide that for you when you were in their prison. So we're going to look at these words today, and I just want to preface it with this comment by a commentator by the name of Miss Johnson that kind of helps set this up for us. He said, Jesus' servant Paul directs his, Philippians friend, his Philippian friends and us to a life anchor that goes deeper than the surface storms of circumstances, deeper than whatever emotional equilibrium we could muster through happy talk or mantras or other stress management techniques. Paul offers us an anchor that secures our well-being eternally in the life and love of the everlasting, everlasting God. He commends to us the joy that he has found through having his life identified by Christ, his cross, and his resurrection. So, my friends, let's jump into this passage today. We're going to call our study, Finding Peace in the Storms of Life. We're just going to look at those few verses in the middle of this letter, beginning at verse 4, chapter 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That word in the Greek means to rejoice. You can translate it to be glad or even to be happy. It's, It's in the present tense, and it's an imperative the way the International Standard Version translated it. Keep on rejoicing in the Lord at all times. I will say it again, keep on rejoicing. I like the way that that translation captures this. No matter what's going on, the good, the bad, or the ugly, keep on rejoicing. I'm going to say it again, keep on rejoicing. Why, Paul? How can you say that? You're sitting in, in chains for four years now, you've been beaten for the Lord Jesus Christ. People have thrown rocks at you, trying to kill you. You've been shipwrecked, trying to make it from point A to point B. It seems like everywhere you turn, you find nothing but the storms of life. How can you say, we the Lord always? Well, see, Paul knows that because Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he came back from the dead on the third day, That changes everything. Despite what appearances are, and despite sometimes you wonder if God might have fallen off his throne, he is actually in control. And because of that, because of the good news, that anchor of the the crucified and resurrected Lord, Paul is able to think entirely differently about life. If God is able to overcome the death of Jesus the Messiah, then he can overcome everything else. If he can bring the greatest good out of the death of the Messiah, then certainly these other things that I face... He can bring good from. He can weave it into the tapestry he has. And so Paul would agree with Leslie Newbigin, that missionary to India, who said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Paul would write to the Romans, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul's saying, think of the worst thing that can happen. Is that enough to separate you from the love of Christ? <laughs> Absolutely not. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He goes on to say, for I am sure, I'm convinced, I am confident that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things that come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's why, my friends, Paul can sit there in chains after four years and say, keep on rejoicing in the Lord at all times. I will say it again, keep on rejoicing. We ought to at least lean in a little bit more and listen to why he's saying this instead of just writing himself off as writing him off as this kind of crazy guy. Verse 5, he has what's almost a parenthetical statement. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why is he saying this? Well, remember, he's writing to people who are going through intense heat of persecution, <laughs> living in this Roman colony, expected to, to give worship to the emperor, were expected to appease the gods by their offerings so that the neighborhood stays safe. They're facing that on the outside, and on inside, they're they're facing this deep division among some of the people in the church that's starting to to split the church apart. And so Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word reasonableness can be translated gentleness, graciousness, considerateness. I think gentleness is is a great translation of it. One commentator said, magnanimity, a largeness of heart. When you're going through it, rejoice in the Lord, keep on rejoicing, and let Your gentleness be known to everyone. Why is he bringing this up? Because, my friends, storms of life hit. It always produces a reaction in us. And so the question I have for you is, what comes out of you when life shakes things up? My friend Jimmy's got a coffee cup over here, and he's got two sons on either side of him, and what if his his two sons at the same time just took their hands and went (laughs) to Jimmy's cup? (laughs) What's on the inside is going to come out on the outside, right? And that's oftentimes the case when the storms of life hit. They pressure us and squeeze us, and what's on the inside comes out on the outside. And so Paul says when that happens, what he wants to see come out of you is gentleness, considerateness, large-heartedness. My friends, I don't know about, I'm convicted right now. Even saying this, I know how difficult this is. Because what comes out of me is oftentimes very ugly. But we try to live by this saying, and we taught our kids this growing up. Just because you're having a bad day does not mean you have the right to take it out on everybody else. I think that's part of what Paul is saying here when he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That gentleness, magnanimity. And so he says in verse, at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Not about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let's start with that first phrase there. The Lord is at hand. Why does Paul bring this up? Well, as you read the commentaries and what different people think what he's saying here, there's, there's about two different options people land on. The first one is this. He's, he's speaking about the Lord's return. I mean, he had just told them in chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the New Living Translation puts it when they translate this phrase. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. It could be that the Lord is coming back. He's, he's coming back for us soon. That might be what Paul means when he says the Lord is at hand. But it might also mean the Lord is near. He says in the book of Psalms, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. saves those crushed in spirit. Before Paul tells you not to be anxious about anything, he's reminding you that the Lord is at hand. Dennis Johnson, once again, in his commentary, put it like this Paul may intend the Lord is at hand. To both truths. The Lord is there now by his Spirit bringing aid in our sufferings, and he is coming soon in his glory bringing suffering to an end. So Paul says, The Lord is at hand. That goes first. This is not a disconnected, don't worry, be happy, kind of bury your head in the sand and pretend like things aren't the way they are. In the midst of the storm of life, remember, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And this is where sometimes people, when they hear another believer going through something, they'll go, hey, just don't be anxious about anything, and just throw that out, removing it from its context. And Maybe if someone's not saying that to you, somewhere in the back of your mind, maybe you read this, and you go, oh, man, and I'm facing this anxiety right now, and I'm supposed to be anxious, and I feel guilty about being anxious. Is this the equivalent of the modern song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? Not at all. In fact, Paul tells us that he deals with anxiety. In 2 Corinthians, he writes to his friends and says to them, that we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. Can you think about someone who's so weighed down with the pressures they're feeling that they they talk about being burdened beyond their strength to the point that they're despairing of life. How can life even go on feeling that close to death? And he also tells them, apart from these things that he's been experiencing, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches the same word that Paul uses in Philippians. He says, I experience anxiety, but Paul tells us not to be anxious. Remember, Jesus himself said, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. My friends, Jesus was no stoic. He didn't go through the trials of his life, facing that cross and not feeling it. In fact, the gospel tells us that Jesus knelt down and prayed. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is, such, this is a rare medical condition where the capillaries begin to leak and they, they break out into the sweat glands. And it looks like a person has Usually people do not survive this condition. Jesus was so stressed out. His, his blood pressure was through the roof. He was feeling the pressure of life. So what do we make of Paul saying the Lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything when we know that there's concerns for life and we feel these pressures and we find ourselves being anxious? I think that what Paul is saying is not that you shouldn't ever feel anything, but he is saying don't get stuck in this moment, this worry, this anxiety when it comes storming into your life because you are not facing it alone. Paul has learned this through seasons of trials in his life. He knows what it's like to be brought to the point of despair. And he knows what it's like to press through and seek the Lord and even to rejoice in the Lord during these times. That's why he'll go on to say, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is how you deal with anxiety in the moment when it strikes. You don't sit there paralyzed. Paralyzed. You take whatever strength you have, and you cry out to the Lord. The central command here is, in everything, let your requests be made known to God. Remember, you're not alone. You're not an orphan. I know it might feel like you are. I know when the pressure's on, and your weaknesses are showing up, and you're wondering, how are you going to make it? You're never, ever alone in those moments. Paul says, use prayer. Use supplication. Use thanksgiving. So think of these, my friends, as three essential tools that you have to have when anxiety strikes. When the storms of life come crashing in, you have the option to use these three essential tools. The first one is prayer. I love the way David Pallison defined prayer. He says, prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life and your God meet. What's going on in your life? That's what you should talk about with the Lord. Are you stressed out? Are you frustrated? Are you freaking out? This is where you should meet God. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to pretend like you're not feeling these pressures. It's it's in this moment. The Lord wants you to come to him. Paul would tell his friends living in Thessalonica these words, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. He knows that they are facing trials following Christ in a society that's not patting them on the back for doing so. He says, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That that phrase has always kind of hit me the wrong way. I'm like, how how do you pray without ceasing? I mean, have you see my to-do list? (laughs) you see all these deadlines I have to face? It became clear to me when I read H.B. Charles' book, Happens After Prayer, which is a good book. I've read it multiple times. He says in this, pray without ceasing. What does does this mean? Does it mean that you should do nothing but pray? No. It means you are to do nothing without prayer. I love that. That means getting up in the morning, you turn your thoughts to the Lord. That means when you're going into this difficult meeting, you turn your thoughts to the Lord. That means when you're up against this deadline, you cry out to the Lord. To pray without ceasing doesn't mean to cut to to cut everything out of life and just be a hermit and be with God. It means in the midst of life, in the midst of the storms of life even, to pursue God. second essential tool that he mentions here is thanksgiving. Back to that passage in the book of Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what my wife and I were struggling to do last night. After one thing after another went wrong in our life. After hearing from friends who are struggling with different things. We had to walk ourselves back to the Lord. Remember, the Lord's still on his throne. His blessings abound. We have a house. We have our family. We have our church. The storm is not the only thing true. So let me ask you this question, my friends. How have you been doing lately in giving thanks in all circumstances? It's easy, isn't it? when things are going great. When the sun is shining down on me and everything's the way it's supposed to be, blessed be your name. Ah. But when life is marked with suffering, when there's pain and offering thanksgiving, ah, isn't it hard to say blessed be your name? But Paul knows that part of the secret of dealing with anxiety is to get your eyes off the storm. And remember how blessed you are, even in the midst of that storm. The third word he uses is supplications. Supplications is just one of those fancy kind of biblical words that just means seek, to entreat, to ask. Maybe Paul was thinking what Jesus said one time when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus is telling his disciples that you follow me in life. I want you to ask, I want you to seek, I want you to knock. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? (laughs) Prayer isn't laying hold of God's reluctance to your heavenly father whose heart is already disposed for you is bent towards you is in favor of you one of my seminary professors Knox chamlin he's a great and godly man he he one time said to us god answers our prayers in three ways one yes and why didn't you ask sooner (laughs) no but keep trusting me three not yet but the time is coming I found it to be helpful in my own life. Luke took one of the parables of Jesus this way. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. When you are under pressure, when that anxiety hits, when the storms of life cave in, when you receive the diagnosis from your doctor you don't want, when that relationship ends, pray and keep on praying and don't lose heart. You're not in this alone. The New Living Translation paraphrases Paul's words in such a beautiful way. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Isn't that good? Would you read that out loud with me? I want you to to feel this coming off your tongue. Let's join together. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. If that's all Paul said here, that would be enough. But it gets even better. Verse 7, he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He highlights the peace of God. Five times in the New Testament their authors describe the Creator as the God of peace. When we first come to experience this God of peace, we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the way Paul would write it to the Romans. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When the words of the gospel come to us about the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus, when we hear that he extends forgiveness of sins to us not on the basis of our performance but simply by asking, simply by trusting him, we have peace. There's no more war from our side to God. He has overcome that. And so my friends, if you've never taken that step to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, do so today. If for no other reason, the peace of God is yours for the asking. So that peace of God, which is ours, the blood of Jesus, comes to us afresh in our anxious situations as we pray. As we pray. It's not an automatic thing. It's when we turn our hearts back to the Lord in the midst of the struggles of life, and we tell God what we need. When we pray about everything that's going on, that's when Paul says this peace shows up the way he puts it is the peace guard your hearts it's in christ jesus that word guard I think of someone guarding something you know <laughs> they're protecting it this is a military term in the original language speaking of soldiers who guard something you see when we're, we are under attack from anxiety god's peace stands ready to guard our hearts and minds as we cry out to him for help. As Paul's going to say in the next week, the God of peace will be with you. So sometimes God calms the storms of life for his children. And sometimes he calms his children in the storms of life. And so my friends, I'm with you. When those storms hit, when the anxiety attacks, I don't want it to be gone. I want want to get to the next chapter. I want to rejoice when When it's gone. But sometimes, those trials linger. And it's in those trials that we turn our heart back to the Lord. And the peace of God comes. Paul describes that peace of God like this. It surpasses all understanding. It's it's incomparable. Paul's sitting there, writing in prison, thinking about his life. And how it got more difficult as he followed Jesus. And the more he talked about Jesus, the more opposition he faced and he's sitting there with these chains on his wrists that have been chapping him for four years. He speaks about this peace of God, which can't be described. I looked at some other translations, and different translators attempt to get at it. The NIV describes that peace which transcends all understanding. New Living Translation, which exceeds anything we can understand. New American Standard Bible, which surpasses all comprehension. International Standard Version, which goes far beyond anything we can imagine. My friends, don't miss how Paul says this comes to us. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace of God comes to you as a gift, and it's wrapped in the person of Jesus. The idea is to experience our union with Christ at deeper and deeper levels so that we can weather the storms of life better. what Jesus said? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Jesus says, when your eyes are on me in the midst of the storm, there is a a transcendent peace that I can give to you, which is like nothing this world has to offer. So my friends, just a couple points of application. Let's battle anxiety with the weapon of prayer. That's what Paul is after here. When these storms of life hit, when the pressure's on, don't be passive. Don't do nothing but turn to the Lord and talk to him about what's going on. You see, battling anxiety with prayer is radically different than merely centering yourself or breathing or meditating or mindfulness or repeating mantras like, don't worry, be happy. I mean, no doubt there's benefit from calming yourself down, for catching your breath. But Paul's just not, he's just not leaving you with your own resources. He's not turning you inward. He's trying to turn you outward. The psalmist put it like this. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. He doesn't say, when I am afraid, I'm going to center myself and breathe deeply. When I'm afraid, he doesn't say, I'm going to just meditate on this moment and practice mindfulness. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. This is something active you have to do. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. So my friends, putting it into practice looks like this. Saying, God, this situation has got my anxiety off the charts. Lord, I just got this diagnosis from my doctor. I'm freaking out about it. Lord, this this relationship I have, which I thought was going to be forever, ended, and I can't handle it. Or maybe this. Lord, these are the things that are keeping me up tonight. You ever have sleepless nights? I do. A lot. So we can stew in it, or we can have a conversation with God. God and seek after that peace that transcends and calms the troubled soul. You see, when we pray, we are bringing God into our circumstances, which I know is not the best, most accurate way of saying that, but in my mind, it helps me remember that when I'm in this situation, what do I need in this moment? I need God. I need to, I need to bring him into the situation. Yes, he's already there, but in my mind, I'm thinking that. Probably a better way of putting it would be like this. When we pray, we're bringing our hearts. I'm sorry about the t- we are bringing our anxious hearts into the presence of the God of peace. Peter put it like this. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the hand of God. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So let's battle anxiety with the weapon of prayer. Here's the second point of application. Let's anchor all our hope in the God of peace not in our circumstances. My friends, I think you're like me in that when you're facing the trials of life, your hope is when those trials get done. It's for the cure. It's for the reconciliation. It's for the kids turning out all right. Those circumstances, I mean, it might happen, but it might not Paul knows following Jesus got him from where he was to a lot worse a position. But Paul's hope is not in his circumstances. It's in the God of peace. There's this beautiful passage in the prophet Habakkuk. I don't know if you've seen this before, but I think it, it just nails this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What's the prophet doing here? He's taking his eyes off everything that could go wrong, and he's placing them on the God of peace, the God of his salvation. How would you write this, my friends? Most of us probably don't have fig trees and vines blooming, don't have olive trees, flocks. But how about if you fail that exam? How about if you get fired from your job? How about if your spouse leaves you? How about if your bank account is hopelessly in debt? Is your hope in your circumstances or is it in the God who rules all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for his glory and for your good? Here's the final point of application, my friends. Let's rest in the peace of God that stands ready to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our King. You know this story from Horatio Spafford, don't you? He's the hymn writer, He was a businessman in the mid-1800s, and quite wealthy, and through the Chicago fires that hit, I think it was 1871, he lost so much wealth. Shortly before that, he and his wife buried their son. In the midst of one thing after another hitting them, they decided to to get away for vacation. They're going to take a a ship over to Europe. Last-minute business kept him at home. He sent his wife and his daughters on ahead of him, And on that voyage across the sea, their ship hit another ship and sank within minutes. There were some survivors. He got a a telegram from his his wife telling him about what happened. And it had these words saved alone. He lost his wealth, he lost his son, now he lost his daughters. And he's grieving (laughs) because his world is falling apart. And so he gets the next ship that he can to sail to overseas to, to be with his wife. And just think about that. I mean, we're used to boarding planes and, and being across the country and across the ocean in hours. Just think about the agony of being separated from your grieving wife as you're grieving. And day after day, you're at sea with your thoughts, wondering what is going on. Eventually, they came to the place where the ship sank. And the captain came on board and told people that they're at that area. They wanted to pay their respects. and He grieved deeply in that moment. And he went to his cabin, and he began to write some poetry. It goes like this. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrow, like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Oh Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. See, my friends, in that, in that the hymn he wrote, is a poem before it's turned into a hymn. He spoke of the agony of his soul. Sorrows like sea billows rolling. Yet in the midst of thinking that went wrong in his life, he remembers that Christ has regarded his helpless estate and has shed his own blood for his soul. All of his sins, not not just the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and he bears them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. My friends, even if the sky falls and everything goes wrong in your life, that truth never changes. And because of that, the Lord shall descend; He will come back again. And to that we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It is well with my soul. Mercy Hill Church. Be with all and peace as you trust.